Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Yeah, good to be with you this morning, and I've already got to uh, mingle with a few. This seems like a really friendly congregation, so we need more of this evergreen ethos in Denver, uh, where I live. Um, And then again, um, pastor, I lead a pastor network as well in Denver, but what the majority get to do is work with the leaders below the waterline of their life, and um, one thing I love, and I can tell you work with a lot of leaders, and I won't say much, uh, you have a good one here, and you have a good one here not because of his gifts, but also because of his self-awareness and his care and his love and his humility, and Jason was saying, hey, uh, I was asking him, Hey, you in a series, do I need to talk about something? He's like, no, you can talk about whatever you want. And I go, okay, well, I want to talk about food then. Um, I grew up in uh, Tennessee by way of Louisiana. I have Cajun parents, so food was always a thing growing up in our family. From those Thanksgiving dinners with crystals and all the traditional Thanksgiving sides, except for the meat. We always had weird things for the meat. You ever heard of a turducken before? It's the most beautiful experience of meat that you could ever imagine. It's a boneless hen with a layer of stuffing with another boneless duck with a layer of stuffing and then a boneless turkey with another layer of stuffing. You eat a slice of that and a nap automatically ensues. But I remember being with my my mom on Thanksgiving and eating this together and sitting around the table and having a formal experience. But then in the summers what we do is we have a crawfish boil. In fact, every summer I fly crawfish out to Denver to do, craw- to do this, and what we do is we put all the crawfish in there, and we put corn and potatoes and garlic, and we just pour all that thing out to get the aroma to hit. We don't sit at a table. We sit at a picnic table. No cutlery, no cups, and we start, start picking and eating all afternoon, and this is the catch. You can learn a lot of things about eating a meal with somebody, can't you? especially meeting, eating at somebody's home more than anything else. And this morning, what we're going to look at really is the story of not of food, but a story of meals. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6. You can open your Bibles there if you want to. It'll be on the screen behind me. But really, it's a story of two meals. One will fly by. One we'll actually dive into that's a little more deeper than that. The first meal that happens in Mark chapter 6, is this meal of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was son of Herod the Great, and he was ruler over all the entire of the Galilean region. So he was having a birthday party. You can imagine what that birthday party would look like. All the military, VIPs, pundits, politicians. It's probably like a banquet from the Hunger Games and President Snow, so to speak. And in fact, Donatello, who did a bronze relief back in, uh, you know, over like almost a century ago, painted it this way. This is called the Feast of Herod. And I just want you to see some things in this photo that situate it for us. So first look at the background. You can see harpists. You can probably see some servants. And then portico and arch under arch. Then you begin to look forward and there's this table. And this table's got silver and gold and plates and the guests there. Now there's something happening at the front of the table that we need to explain. It was Herod's birthday party and his niece was there. And Herod's chief rival, his chief threat to his power is John the Baptist. 
he could lead this rebellion. They could overturn it. In fact, John, where, where he was, he was imprisoned at this point in time underneath a cistern, most likely in the Herodian palace. And what the niece asked for is, hey, little girl, what do you want? I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so what you see at the end of it is, is this horrific scene of, of uh, what's occurring. But you see this meal of power and blood work and control. This is the first meal that we have. You can sense what's going on here. And then what Mark does is he moves to another meal. Not the meal of Herodotipus, but the meal of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what's called the feeding of the 5,000. That's where we're going to spend our time together. Now, quick show of hands. If you've heard of that phrase before, the feeding of the 5,000, or have read a text, just go ahead and raise your hand if that sounds familiar to you. Okay, this is the great danger of the text. The great danger of the text is familiarity, because we think this is just a really kind, like, picnic with Jesus. You can imagine the red solo cups, those red and white tablecloths, and he's just sitting down, but this is actually a pretty powerful point. In fact, this is the only food miracle that's in all four Gospels. Mark is a really fast writer. Have you ever read it? It's always immediately, 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 immediately. It's watching, it's listening to an audiobook on like 1.25 speed. <laughs> and then all that happens now, like Mark literally slows down the text and gives us a whole lot of detail. He's trying to make us catch some things here. So what I want you to do is shake out your mental etch-a-sketches of what this text is about, and we're going to unearth some new things. Mark chapter 6, you can turn there. Uh, we're going to be verses 30 through 44. I'm going to read the text first. This is out of the ESV uh, translation. <clears throat> this is what Mark chapter 6 says. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and gathered there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion upon them. For they were out, they were uh, like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And he said to them, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. We found out, he said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. By taking the loaves, he gave them um, and gave the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. Those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, which means there's a whole lot more people there than you realize, probably 15,000 people or so. This is God's 
word. And it's really easy to think about this as a nice picnic. Maybe there's a cornhole set and a fire pit if you're in Colorado, but something else is going on. So there's a few things I want to point out. Three things I'm curious about. One thing I'm shocked by. The first thing I'm really curious about with this text is the setting. If you caught it in verse 30, what had just happened, he sent the disciples all the way out for the first time to go heal and teach in his name throughout the Galilean region. And finally, they're coming back. And this is what's brilliant to me, too. The first thing Jesus says is not, hey, um, what are your KPIs for today? Uh, Can I get a pie chart on your effectiveness? The very first thing he does is he says, come with me and rest. By the way, following Jesus is more about pacing and rest than doing things for him. But then what begins to happen is uh, all these people begin to gather because you realize the disciples are there, almost the the beetles are in the room, so to speak. And so they they have this brilliant move to get away, to isolate, they get on a boat, and they go across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee, it's not really a sea. I was in Israel in March. I had the privilege of going. It's like 12 times the size of, of like Evergreen Lake. 12 to 20. Take the frame of reference it lightly. But it's more of a, a really huge lake. And what they would do is they would cross, uh, not like north to south, but catty corner across the sea to try to get away. But something unique is happening. Let's look at verse 33. This is what it says. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. What's going on? And this is not a rhetorical question. Go go ahead. What do you think is going on here? Yeah, they're trying to get to Jesus first. So this is what's literally happening. The disciples and Jesus are trying to row across the Sea of Galilee. There's most likely a headwind that's slowing them down. And all of a sudden, a crowd and thongs of people are coming across, and they beat them to the exact spot. And by the way, this isn't like a safe, fun crowd for the whole family that's there. So what's in the hill country, this crowd that's gathered? It's the Jewish sect called the Zealots. Now, the Zealots were the people who wanted rebellion, Like, hey, what we want is we want to overturn the Roman government and take control of Jerusalem. And the reason I know this, like, hey, Brandon, how how do you know this? Well, in John chapter 6, what it says is these people wanted to make Jesus a king by force. So I want you to imagine this crowd that's about to meet Jesus isn't just sweet, meek, and mild. They may have pitchforks. They're ready to go somewhere and be mobilized. You ever been in a situation like that before where this crowd's got a sense of energy or unrest. Maybe it's at a sporting event, a Nuggets game, a concert, perhaps a, a protest or demonstration, just this sense of energy that's occurring. Uh, I remember I went to the University of Georgia. One of my jobs was a tour guide there, and um, it's a beautiful campus, by the way. If you've ever been there, it's worth going. The town and the university were developed right on top of one another, so literally there's a 200-year-old town called Athens and then a 200-year-old uh, university, and they're right across the street together. And my job was to tour people around the campus. Well, one day we're going up there and have a, ta- uh, a bus probably of like, you know, 15 mothers and their daughters and sons touring the campus, big picture windows. And we didn't know, this was the day in the early 2000s the Iraq War started. And so literally in the street, there's pro-war people ready to go. And there's anti-war people and they're having signs together. And you just imagine like, oh, this is unique. And then literally on my speaker here, 
There's somebody in their birthday suit, and then right next to the bus full of moms, there's somebody running, <laughs> showing all the goodness that, that they've been born with in the midst of it. It's this sense of unrest. Do you kind of get a sense of what Jesus is walking into a little bit? This is not an easy and light crowd. This is a crowd that's ready to go and ready to mobilize. And he steps into this setting. And what I'm really curious is how is Jesus going to respond to this? Because if we're honest, this is the, the place in the movie of all the Hollywood, Hollywood movies where they mobilize their troops. This is like the inspirational saying that happens in all the movies. You can track it throughout history. 1995, Braveheart. They may take our lives. Can somebody finish it? But they'll never take our freedom. I'm not going to throw away my shot. It's even in Pixar movies. To infinity, thank you, exactly. That's what we expect Jesus to do here, but he doesn't. Look at how he responds in verse 34. It says, when he went ashore, this is a group that wants to make him king, a military leader to overthrow the government. He says this, he had compassion on them. By the way, if you're a Bible circular, you don't have to, but that's a pretty important phrase of all the emotional words that Jesus says and has, the fullness of his emotional life, this is the one that shows up the most. And by the way, compassion, you ever seen those uh, pet adoption commercials with Sarah McLaughlin that like manipulates you into pity? This is not what the Bible is talking about. Literally in the Greek, what this means is to be moved in the guts, to be shaped in your bowels, to be deeply moved. In fact, what neuroscience actually affirms what the biblical writers now talk about. If you know anything about the gut-brain access, I'll nerd out for two seconds. I'm writing a thesis on this, so I gotta sneak it into a sermon somehow. So this is just a little bit of a benefit, okay? Take it or leave it. But there's, a, there's serotonin receptors in your brain. There's a access and there's serotonin receptors in your gut. And so some of you may have had a college graduate or high school graduate this weekend and all of a sudden you were feeling something in your gut, that's because there's serotonin receptors here. And when things hit us, we feel it from the inside. Jesus has deep compassion. Now, in a world of division, mudslinging, labeling, stereotyping, writing people off, Jesus' primary emotion towards the big, bad world is compassion. Think about it this way. So Baylor University did a study and said, hey, what, what's your primary view of God? Is it positive or negative? So they surveyed thousands and thousands of Christians across the country. You know what 77% of Christians said about Jesus' view towards them? Inherently negative. So this compassion that Jesus has, can you access it in your own life as well? This is what Dane Ortland says, a great book, if you ever need to read it. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Highly recommend it. It says this. The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who Jesus is over many decades fall away. Being so slowly replaced with God's own existence on who he is. Oh, a word my son uses, he's now in sixth grade, about to go into seventh grade, is cringy. That's a new word I've adopted in my vocabulary with a middle schooler. 
one of the things, if you think about your most cringy moment this week, where maybe you blew it, you, you were sharp, you were cold, you weren't fully present, how do you think Jesus views you in that moment? Is he one of compassion towards you? Now, I know you don't know me. You've known I'm looking at the clock. You've known me probably for 17 minutes. So I'm going to ask you to donate a little bit of trust. It's a challenge by choice. All I want you to do is close your eyes, if you're willing. I'm going to do a little, a little thought experiment here. I want you to envision you're seated in a chair. And 18 inches away from you is another chair. It's an empty room. You're seated. You feel the weight of the chair on your back. Your feet are on the floor. And in walks an actual person, not a celebrity, but somebody who frustrates you, who irritates you. You find hard to love, perhaps somebody where... You walk in and all of a sudden, that fear begins to rise. And they sit down. My question is, if you had Jesus' compassion, what would change about that relationship? What would change about your patience, your demeanor, What would change about your Monday morning business meetings? Your mom's summer book clubs? What if you could access Jesus' compassion for them? All right, you can open your eyes. I did that because what the world needs from the church or people have that deep-founded view of compassion and can extend it to others. And by the way, the only way we get that is we can access Jesus' compassions towards us. Now, um, I only challenge people what I tend to do myself. And so, I mean, a couple weeks ago, I was at a pastor's conference with about 20 people. And you ever been in a meeting with like a name dropper? Or like a church dropper? I was with a, a colleague, and it was day two or day three. And day two, I counted in a two-hour period with 20 pastors in the room. He mentioned his church 27 times. I don't want to give you the ratio on that, but that's where my mind was going. And by the end of day two, I'm like, okay, God, like, I, I may like, change my flight and get home early. Like, this, is, this is like just rearing on me. And I, I remember praying, and I didn't hear the audible voice. But I heard this. Hey, Brandon, that person's in process, just like you're in process. And the reason you don't have compassion for him is you fail to see your need of compassion from me. The only way we have compassion towards other people is so we can access our need of God's compassion for us. Is that making sense? Okay, like, I'm more like dialogical in my coaching. I gotta get used to the monologue again. Okay, well, I got an amen. So that's like a Presbyterian hallelujah. I'll take it. Um, But this is the catch. Jesus has a group of people who's willing to mobilize and go. And the first thing he does before he steps onto the boat, he has compassion. 
splash xenomai is the word, deeply moved in his, his bowels. And out of his compassion, this is what Jesus brings. Let's look at verse 34 again. Verse 34 says this. When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Whenever that occurs, what the Bible's talking about, they were like people without a leader. They wanted a leader. They wanted military. They wanted might, things like that. Um, And then he says this, and he began to teach them many things. I'm like, Mark, talk about the oversight in the text. He began to teach them many things. I want to know what that's about. But what Jesus brings are words. Now, in our culture, we don't hold a lot of weight to words. We call them tall tales, sweet nothings. Charlie Brown's mother, wah-wah, 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 wah-wah. And we don't know what Jesus is speaking about, but I'm pretty sure he's not speaking about like the equivalent of the Nuggets win in the ancient Near East or the the latest news story. Because when we have compassion, what we speak to are the deepest longings of our hearts. We speak to our hungers and our desires. And I don't know where you are today, if you're peeking over the fence of Christianity, if you're part of Bergen Park or not, but let me share this. Regardless of where you are, you are a hungry person. And I'm not talking about the lack of breakfast or the longing towards lunch. I'm talking more of these existential components of who we are. We are hungry, desiring, longing. And um, John Paul Sartre, he's an atheist philosopher, French. He even said it this way. Let's put this quote up here, too. First, he's, he's proclaiming his atheism, and the second, he's proclaiming his, his humanity. He says, that, that God does not exist. Okay, I'm an atheist, but I cannot deny this, that my whole being cries out for the God I cannot forget. What he's saying is mentally, I don't think that God exists, but existentially, in my longings, in my hunger, I know there's got to be something more. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I think what's going on in this text more than anything else is Jesus is not just speaking to their rationality. He's speaking to their hunger. He's speaking to their desires. He's saying, I know you're hungry for a new leader, a new government, but that answer is actually found in me. So really briefly, those are the three things I'm pretty curious about the setting, his response, what he brings. But really, that's all of a precursor to what I want to talk about. I'm really shocked about what Jesus finally brings, and he asks. He actually asks for something from the disciples. So this is what happens in, um, in verse 36. Let's go back to the story. This will make sense. There's thousands of people there. The disciples have already been out there all day. They haven't had anything to eat. The disciples are going, hey, like it's getting late. In verse 36, this is what it says. This is a desolate place. In verse 35, basically, hey, there's no Quickie Mart or Costco or Panera in sight. What we need to do, Jesus, is people are hungry. We need to send them away to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to, you know, uh, buy, them, buy themselves something to eat. It's like the idea is, hey, we can't feed all these people. We don't have a cow right here. We've got to send them to the villages and the countrysides and get them something to eat on their own. And that, that makes rational sense, doesn't it? I was at a conference uh, two weeks ago. We were planning it, and the idea is, hey, we can do the, the cater thing, but then you got to deal with gluten and dairy and wheat. Or we can like, cater in something like Panera, but the problem with Panera, it tastes like overpriced hospital food. 
I'm going to let that sit. That's free, just so you know. Um, or what's easier is just send people, go, go out and let them eat on their own. There's a bunch of restaurants that they can pay for it. That's what the disciples are offering. It's a pretty rational, logical argument. But then look what Jesus says in verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. So I want you to put yourself in the place of the disciples. Like they've been working all day. They didn't plan for this. They say, you give them something to eat. Um, You don't have to go to Sunday school here, by the way. What would be your emotional response to Jesus in that moment? Not rhetorical, by the way. This is where the, the dialogue happens. What would be your response? What? How? What? What's going on? Like, yes? You must be kidding you. Yes, that's very biblical, by the way. We'll see that response. What else? No, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm out. I'd be angry at Jesus. Like, what are you talking I'd be afraid? Angry? What about me? And in fact, the response in verse 38, this is what, Jesus, this is what the disciples do. They say, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? Basically, what the disciples are going, that's like $60,000 if we do a modern day equivalency plus, plus like inflation. Hey, do you want me to go buy like a moderate wedding reception for all these people? Is that what I'm gonna go do right now, Jesus? Now, the better question, what is Jesus doing here? This is what I love. You ever heard of the, those cliches like God will never give you more than you can handle? Can I tell you something? I like blowing up cliches, by the way. Jesus is literally giving the disciples more than they can handle in this moment. Because they go back and all they have are five loaves and two fishes. I got like half a pizza, Jesus. What are we going to do with this? <laughs> what am I going to do with this? And Jesus is doing this not to shame them, not to expose them, but to get them in touch with their inadequacy. The call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will feel inadequate. What God calls you to in this life, you will feel a sense of inadequacy. And I'm not even talking about the big and risky things in life. Talk about the the vulnerability and the the faith it takes to raise raise a child or the trust it takes to to stay towards somebody in marriage and have it sing and thrive and live out your vocation with resilience and care. And if you have never felt inadequate, and I wanna say this humbly, I'm a guest teacher here, but this is what's bumbling up, and I'll just be honest with you. If you never felt inadequate in your Christian life, perhaps you're following the, the gospel of cultural comfort, perhaps not the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. Because what we see here, the disciples are dead center with their inadequacy. And this is what they do. They come back in verse 38. And Jesus asked them, how many loaves and fish do you have? Now, Jesus probably knew that. He was with them all day. Five loaves and two fishes. And they bring their inadequacy to Jesus. I think that's the point of the text for us as followers of Jesus. It's not simply about uh, feeding the 5,000. It's what do you do with your inadequacy? So two questions for you at this moment. 
Where do you feel inadequate in your life? Well, where do you, what do you tend to do with your inadequacy? Hide it, deny it, push it down, read books, certifications, seminar after seminar after seminar. What do you tend to do with your inadequacy? And the second question, what does the gospel say about our inadequacy? What I'm trying to get at here, the disciples bring their inadequacy to Jesus, the five loaves and two fishes. And what does he do? He doesn't shame it. He doesn't deny it. He blesses and multiplies it. He uses their inadequacy for kingdom purposes. What Jesus could have done, uh, my, my kids are Harry Potter fans, he could have been like Albus Dumbledore. You know what Albus Dumbledore does in Hogwarts Hall? He like, takes out the wand and just psh, and all this food falls down from the ceiling and everybody's satisfied. No, he uses five loaves and two fishes. He uses the disciples and what they bring from kingdom purposes for him. This is a radically different meal than, than um, the meal of Herod Antipas. And I want you to see how the text ends. So basically what happens is he sit down and hundreds and fifties and set apart, but then in verse 42, it's pretty fascinating to me. It says this, they all ate and were satisfied. The people wanted a riot, the zealots, the disciples, and that verb, uh, satisfaction, being satisfied, isn't just talking about having a good meal, like I had a great brunch. That's an existential satisfaction, like, my soul can be at rest. My soul is full. My hungers are fulfilled. They are enough. This is the meal of Jesus of Nazareth. And the question I begin to ask about this text is, okay, how could the rioters, those zealots with pitchforks standing there in the boat of Jesus, ready to, to make a military leader, how could they end the text and be satisfied? How did that happen? I think this is where the gospel hits home for us. They wanted a new military leader. They wanted a new Joshua. They wanted a new Moses. And Jesus says, no, I am the new Moses. I'm the new Joshua. And I'm gonna break myself so you can be satisfied. So you can find out that I'm enough. And what I love about this text, being a 40-year-old man, in a world is often I find my heart being restless and often I find my heart looking for lovers less wild and satisfaction whatever is outside the walls of this room. And Jesus says, no, will you come to me? So my encouragement is out of this text, one, where are you restless that you need to find satisfaction in Jesus? What are you running to that you know won't necessarily bring you life? Then also, do you have the courage to bring your inadequacy to him? Not so you can simply feel better about yourself, but it can be multiplied for kingdom impact. Be multiplied in your life, in your work, and beyond. Let's pray together before we go to communion. Lord, you're good. 
God, thank you that you are a God of compassion. That when you see need and you see restlessness and you see inadequacy, you are one who are deeply moved. And often I am not that type. So I pray for us. I pray that you give us the ability to access compassion for ourselves and our world. I pray you give us the ability even to bring our inadequacy to you so we can have a voice that speaks louder than that voice. And even I pray for us who are restless that you will bring a sense of satisfaction. We often search and long for things that are not of you, so I pray that you help us come home that you draw us in. God, and thank you for even uh, who you are. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, now we've come to the time of response and um, I got a little bit of fear here. I've never done this before in this church, so we're just gonna roll with it. Um, there's a couple things you can do. Uh, one, Silence. What, what I say often, we don't use silence enough in our life. Uh, this is a place to have silence, to respond, to see what God is saying with you and in you and through you through this text. The other is response. Uh, and the way we respond is through, if something's been stirred up, we talk about it. We just don't just go home. So talk to an elder, talk to a friend, talk to Jason, talk to a prayer, a prayer person. And the third is through communion. Um, and so I encourage you, come grab your elements if, if you haven't and use this time and then we'll partake together in a few moments. One thing I love about this meal is I bring nothing and all it requires is the acknowledgement of my need. This is a meal for us. One of the reasons we take it together, at least in the tradition I'm a part of, we use the Heidelberg Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism says this thing. 
what's your only hope in life and death, that I'm not my own. And one of the reasons we take this together is we're reminded that we are not our own and we're not on our own. That we have Christ, the Holy Spirit, and actually one another together. So on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, he had a meal with his friends. And after giving thanks, he took bread. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the body of Christ, broken for us. And after supper, he took a cup of wine, which is known as the Passover cup. And after pouring it out and giving thanks, he said, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. Let me tell you this real quick. This blood, this wine, is the voice that should speak louder than the voice of shame, sadness, and despair, that you belong in your beloved. Let's drink together.